Good to see you here. I wasn't sure if there would be anybody here today, but it is good to to see you all here. And uh, let me greet those of you who are joining us online. We are always glad to have you be a part of Freedom Online, and uh, probably more so than ever right now. Uh, A lot of our own home folks are watching uh, from home, and we're glad that you're able to do that. Um, I I do want to say a word to those of you who are not from here, who tune in each week. It it is kind of mind-boggling to consider that we have people in Mexico City and Guatemala who tune in each week, people from Ireland and Germany, from England and Africa and Australia, and from uh, states all around the U.S. who tune in. And uh, we're grateful that you that you join us, that you're a part of our extended family, and particularly in a season like this, uh, we want you to know that uh, we are one, that we are one in the family of faith, but uh, with all that's going on right now, uh, we want you to know that we stand together and that we are praying for you as you pray for us. And uh, I'm going to take a little bit of time before we get into the Word and just talk with you about some of what's going on and how we respond to this. You allow me, those of you here locally and those of you who tune in on a regular basis, you allow me the opportunity, the privilege to speak into your lives on a regular basis, and I am truly humbled by that fact. And it would be foolish to me in a season like this to fail to speak to the biggest issue that's before us right now, and to sort of act like that's not going on. So we're going to camp here for just a few minutes. Uh, Most of you, probably just about everyone knows, that we uh, will not continue to meet in any type of gatherings at all for the next few weeks. We're not sure how long that's going to be. And I want to be clear about that. Uh, We're not doing that out of fear. I I can say this honestly. I've never had a moment in any of what's going on that I have felt a, a shred of fear about what's happening. We're doing what we're doing because we feel like it is the wisest course to ensure maximum safety for people. And I don't feel like that that we're overreacting to do this. And nothing that I'm about to say is an attempt to defend that. It is just to speak into the situation that we're now facing. I know that that we as a congregation, both locally and, and the web community that we have, are probably, I know we are, we're all over the, the page in terms of our opinions about what's going on and how serious this is and how we should respond to this. And unfortunately, we're in a situation that has been politicized. People are, are using this to try and make others look bad or try and make themselves look good. And so in an attempt to do that, they'll either heighten or diminish the seriousness of what's going on. And I don't have any interest in doing any of the above, but I would like to speak into the situation. One, to just try and make sure we are on the same page about what's happening and to consider what an appropriate response for us as the family of faith should be. So um, I hope the things I'm about to share with you don't make you mad, but it really doesn't matter because I'm going to share them anyway because I love you and and this stuff matters. Thank you. There's good news and there's bad news. So let's, let's approach it that way. There, there is good news. With all of the bad news that's out there, there are some things that we can say that are positive. On the positive side, speaking for those of us who, who are local, 
there is a good chance that you don't have COVID-19 right now. That's good news. That's, that's good news. There's a decent chance, a decent chance that you haven't even been exposed to it yet. That's good news. If you have been or you become exposed, if you do contract this disease, there is a slightly better than 90% chance that you will not become critically ill. That is very good news. We're grateful for that. But there's also a lot of sobering news. And we need to understand both sides of this. And this is the part that has confused a lot of people because of the good news that I just said, that a lot of people who get this are not becoming critically ill. People are, are, a lot of people are tending to blow it off and say, well, it's not that big of a deal. A lot of people who get this aren't even getting that sick with it, so how big of a deal is it? And younger people aren't dying, so how big of a deal is it? As if we didn't love senior adults. I mean, that, what, what a strange response. But on the, on the sobering side of this, we have to think about this for a bit. This is a very peculiar virus because it, it's sort of a, fl- a, a, a feast or famine type situation that the people who contract this tend to, in large numbers, not get terribly sick, but those who do get critically sick are getting horribly sick and a large percentage are dying, which is a very, very peculiar trend, but that is very much the global trend. In trying to to get a handle on what we're, we're looking at, you hear people saying all kinds of things, and one of the most common responses on the side of, of trying to say it's not that big a deal, we don't need to be worried about it, is either pointing to the, the raw number of num- number of people who have contracted this either nationally or globally or who have died globally. And say, if you look at this, it's such a tiny, tiny fraction of the percentage of the population, and so how serious is that? The thing to understand is this is just beginning. Three and a half months ago, one person had this illness. Today, it's in 155 countries. 160,000 people have been diagnosed with this, and that's probably only a shadow of reality because just so many people haven't been tested. It is important to understand in facing a crisis like this, there are two numbers that matter more than anything else in understanding the nature of a disease, and that is mortality rate and the R-naught factor of a disease. The R-naught factor is a measure of how easily transmittable a disease is. There are a lot of different diseases that will be high in one or the other of those two things. For instance, MERS and SARS had extremely high mortality rates. If you got it, there's a really good chance you were going to die. But thankfully, they were not as easily transmittable, and so they became much more manageable diseases, though they were terrible diseases. The really, really scary thing is when you ever have a disease that is high in both of those numbers. And so let's pause for a moment to consider what we are are currently looking at. Because so many people are saying, don't worry about this. It's just like the flu. In fact, it's not killing nearly as many people as the flu is killing. So let's get really clear about this. This disease is like the flu so long as you include all flus. And you include specifically the Spanish flu of 1918. Because that is what this is most like. None of us were around in 1918 to watch what happened. So let me remind you of what happened in 1918. In one year, in a period of history when there was very little international travel, a strain of the flu 
which had a 2.5% mortality rate, killed between 20 and 100 million people globally in one year's time. Basically, it killed as many people as all of World War II killed globally, and it did it in one year at a time when people were not traveling between countries very frequently. That's what a strain of the flu with a 2.5% mortality rate can do. Unfortunately, we're looking at a virus which has a similar mortality rate. Now, you'll hear a bunch of different uh, explanations as to what the current mortality rate is. Those who are trying to diminish how bad it is are saying it may be as low as 1%. It's not going to be 1%. It's not 1%. When you measure mortality rate, the only thing that can, act, can give you a real number for mortality rate is by examining closed cases, resolved cases. That means the disease has run its course in a person's life and they either got well or they died. If somebody still has the disease, you don't know what the outcome is going to be, so you can't count them on the mortality rate. For those who have been diagnosed globally with this illness and for those who have ever been diagnosed with COVID-19 in the last three and a half months, just over half are closed cases, just above 50%. So of those closed cases, the one that can be measured, we know how many lived and how many died. And and the number has stayed steady. 7% of closed cases ended in death. That's a fact. That's not not social media. And by the way, social media has become the worst source of information. You know, it's an old saying that in war, the first casualty is always the truth. Well, we're in a war and, and the truth is getting run over. What I'm telling you, these are the numbers that the CDC and the World Health Organization all will stand behind. Of closed cases, 7% have died. Now, that's not going to end up being the mortality rate for this disease. It's going to wind up being more like 25 or 3.5% most likely. It might be just a tick above that. But what we're seeing is a mortality rate very much in line with the Spanish flu. Okay, how how contagious is this thing? The, The flu that we normally see... A typical round of the flu, let's just say in the past year or two in the United States. About one, for the past year, about one in 13 Americans, in spite of the fact that we do the flu vaccine, about one in 13 Americans got the flu this last cycle. We we say, oh, we can live with that. We're not crazy about it. But one in 13 got it. And of those who get it, roughly, the the numbers are, are a little fuzzy, but roughly one out of 1,500 of the people who get just the normal flu in America, die from that. So one in 13 catch it, and then out of those, one in 1,500 die. Well, the flu has an r naught factor. That's the measure of how easily transmittable it is of about 1.2 or 1.3. That means everybody who gets it is going to pass it on to about 1.2 or 1.3 people. Anything above one means it's going to grow in number. That's why the flu spreads so badly because at 1.2 or 1.3, it's easy to pass around. Unfortunately, COVID-19 has an r naught factor of somewhere between 2 and 3.8. That's what causes a pandemic. It's very, very easily transmittable. It is a very hardy virus. It survives on surfaces for a long time, and it's very stealthy. It's very peculiar. It's got a, a long incubation period between the time that you catch it and the time that it manifests any symptoms it's longer than most illnesses so you can be carrying this around for a bunch of days and not know that you have it and in spite of what we were told early on where health officials said don't worry about spreading it very few people are going to spread it during those days before they feel sick 
now more than a half dozen international studies of COVID-19 have proven again and again and again that people are widely spreading the disease before they ever knew that they were sick, before they ever had any symptoms. And so it's this confluence of, of issues that it's easily transmittable, that it has a high mortality rate, that it's very hearty, and all of that coming together makes this the perfect storm. And I know that it's easy to look at the numbers and go, yeah, but still, there haven't been that many people who've caught it, and there haven't been that many people who have died. How alarmed do we need to be? Forgive me if this sounds like it's overstating the case, but to take that attitude is very similar to being on the Titanic after the iceberg was hit, but in the hours that immediately followed and saying, you know, we're still above water and the ship's only leaning this much. I mean, how bad can it be? Not many people have died yet. We are so, so early in this. And we know, we know because this has been so carefully studied, we know how it plays out when you mix this level of, of communicability of the disease with this level of mortality rate we're not having to make it up we've seen this in modern history it's just been about a hundred years we know how that plays out but we've never seen how that plays out when people travel this freely that's why they're locking down travel the way that they are so we have a serious situation before us and then the question becomes how do we respond to that well first of all as the people of God we certainly shouldn't respond in panic and in fear and that's not what we're doing as a church and and you'll see across the board churches are going to shut down what they're doing we're doing that because we want to be responsible and we don't have to every sunday of the year be gathered like this in order to be the church this is an opportunity for us to be the church in the community so my appeal to you is is a handful of things first of all be of good courage be encouraged. God is faithful through this. And above everything, do exactly what Todd just saying. Cry out to Jesus. God is greater than this disease. How we need to respond to this is we need to pray like it's all up to God to stop this and work like it's all up to us to stop it. That's a good approach, isn't it? God is able, and I fully believe, that he will respond to the prayers of his people as nations cry out to him. And that we'll see that the tide turned on this. So first of all, pray. Secondly, do the obvious. Do, do the practical personal hygiene things that will ensure your safety. And you don't need me to give you a lesson on what those things are. You're hearing it in every form of media that's out there. But the final thing, and this is the one that people are so resistant to. This is the reason that we're shuttering everything that we do in the church for a season. We must practice this thing that we're referring to as social distancing. There is only one way humanly possible to stem a disease like this, and that is we have to not be around each other. It's going to be terribly inconvenient, but if we don't do this by choice, I can tell you what's coming, and it is right around the corner. If we don't take the steps that we need to take, to stay away from each other. And when I say stay away from each other, it doesn't just mean that you don't come to church. It means you don't go out to eat. It means you don't go to work. It means you do not do the things where you're going to come in contact with other humans for the next few weeks. If you don't do this, rest assured, 
the government will step in. We're seeing this happen in multiple democracies where the disease is just a week or two ahead of us, what we're experiencing in America, and the government will have to force us to stop doing these things. It's a really curious experiment that we're in right now because Americans are so independent. We don't want anybody telling us what we can or can't do. And if you look around, everybody's doing exactly what they've always been doing. And part of it is because right now we have no earthly idea how much this is in our own yard. We, we don't know. And the reason we don't know is because people haven't been tested. I mean, the numbers came out yesterday that in the United States, less than 8,000 people have been tested by Wednesday of this past week. In the state of Alabama, 70 people had been tested, a grand total of 70 as of Thursday. We're talking three days ago, and it takes 24 to 48 hours to get the results. So the numbers that would make you think, oh, it's, it's not here yet, we don't have any idea whether it's here or not. I'm not telling you that it's rampant here. Nobody knows because in a state with 5 million people, 70 people have been tested as of Thursday. So I, I don't want you to panic over that. I just want you to understand that for us to go, well, I don't feel sick. I don't feel like there's anything wrong with me, so I'm not going to give it to anybody you can't think like that. First of all, you're not going to know that you have it and that you can pass it on until you've had it for several days and you've been able to pass it on for several days. And we cannot be so selfish as to say, my age group, I've seen the percentages. I've got a way, way below 1% chance of dying if I get this. Okay, if you're young, that's the case. But how many people are you willing to kill in the name of it ain't going to hurt me? There's nothing that would be less Christian than for us to be inconsiderate of the people around us who have underlying health conditions and, and who are elderly. So if for no other reason than for the safety of everyone around us, we've got to do something that's terribly inconvenient. But how inconvenient is it that for just a few weeks we'd stay at home? So I am appealing to you. Pick up what you need. I hope it didn't toilet paper. <laughs> Pick up whatever else you need and go home. Don't come back to church. Don't go out to eat. Make whatever arrangements you need to with work. But stay away from everyone. But stay in touch. Stay in touch with your church. Stay in touch with your small group. Stay in touch with your neighbors. And do your best to do that online and by phone. But... But don't closet yourself away. I mean, thankfully, we live in a time where we can stay in touch with people and see what they need, and we can get people what they need without having to get in their faces and, and without touching them. So don't closet yourself in a way that you isolate yourself in terms of knowing what's going on with other people and being able to show the love of Christ to them and just compassion. Stay in touch, but stay away from one another. Make sense? It's not a happy message, but it is reality. And we can impact what's happening in the world far more than anyone else by our prayers. When people pray in faith, the hand and heart of God are moved. So I'm going to invite us before we turn to the Word to pause and call on God together. Would you bow with me? God, you are good and you are faithful. And we ask you today to show us your mercy. We ask you today to demonstrate your power to destroy this illness and to protect humanity. God, we don't just pray for America. We pray for the nations.
we pray for those who are sick, that you would heal them. We pray that you would protect the elderly. We pray that you would protect the infirm. We pray, God, that you would pour out healing mercy in such a way that it would clearly be your hand that you would get the glory from this. We pray that you would give us courage and wisdom to know how to move forward. And we just say clearly, God, we trust you. You are always good. We thank you for your protection. We ask you to to cover each of us. We love you and we welcome your, your work and your protection in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, now, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. We're going to uh, be in Genesis, so I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. I love how God's timing is always just right. We've been working through this series in the Abraham story, and I didn't have to manipulate it that we land at Genesis 15, a message that is entitled, Dealing with Doubt and Fear. Is there any message that's more timely right now than addressing the issue of fear? I think we run to two extremes in a season like this. We either run to a place of denial or we go into a dark place of fear and uncertainty, afraid of death, afraid of of the unknown. And God has some encouraging words for us today as we look to Genesis 15. I'll invite you to read along with me. We'll begin in verse 1 of Genesis 15 where it says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Anytime you read after this, you need to pause and go after what? Quick reminder, we talked about this last week. In Genesis 14, Abraham just experienced the biggest shock of victory that he's ever had in his life when the four kings from what is now Iraq had come down and had conquered five kings in the Holy Land and they had carried off the people along with some of Abraham's family and all their possessions. Abraham's not a king. He's not over a city. He's not over a kingdom. But the 318 male servants, trained men in his household, he led them out and they chased down those four kings and their armies and they, they made a surprise attack and won an incredible victory because God was with him. And so immediately following what happened there, just shortly after that, is what God begins to speak into. So after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the The one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Today, a lot of us would be, you know, bothered by that. He's a senior adult at this stage of his life. He's in his 80s or 90s, and his wife is only 10 years behind him. They they look around and say, well, there's no way we're going to have kids, and we really wanted to have kids. But particularly in ancient culture, it was such a bigger deal. And, and this was only magnified by the fact that God had promised that you're not only going to be parents, but you're going to be the, the mother and father of a vast nation. And he's saying, God, uh, obviously that's not going to happen. And now, I mean, some foreigner, my basically my chief of staff is going to inherit everything. I just, I'm so discouraged and don't know what to think of this. And then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then the very next verse we're about to read, 
is possibly the most important verse in the entire Old Testament. It is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, Genesis 15.6. Abram believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. We'll come back to that. Verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? You ever have doubts? You ever have doubts about the promises of God? Abraham's just acknowledging his out loud. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. That's not exactly what we would expect God to say back, but this made more sense to Abraham in an age of sacrifices. So Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, in the rest of this chapter, we're going to read what is for us a very peculiar scene. It's a very unusual scene, even for Old Testament times, but just a quick explanation. Abraham understood at least this much of what was going on. When a covenant was made, and a covenant is the most solemn promise that people ever make, these are life and death kinds of promises. And in ancient culture, when they would make a covenant, the terminology that they would use is to cut a covenant. And what they would literally do is they would chop animals in half. Sacrificed animals would be a part of the ritual, and they would take the halves of the animal. Back half of a ram over here, front half over here. The same thing with the goat and you know whatever else is, is laid out. So that there's a path in between the halves of these animals. And the people entering into covenant are going to... Together, they're going to walk between those pieces of animals. And it's a part of the, the whole covenant thing. They are saying, this is life and death stuff. This is so important that by walking through here and doing this ritual, we are saying we would rather ourselves be killed, just as these animals were killed, rather than to violate the terms of this covenant. Are you with me? So cutting a covenant means this is life and death. This is as serious as it gets. So Abraham understands Okay, the stage is being set for the cutting of a covenant, and he lays this stuff out. But there's this peculiar little line, Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Pause for just a second to point this out. In Scripture, it's interesting the number of times that birds become symbolic of demonic attack, of, of demonic influence. And it is just an interesting little piece in the picture to recognize Abraham does exactly what God had, had put on his heart to do. He's obedient to it. And initially, what happens? Nothing. He gets ready. He, he, I mean, you realize you don't do this in 30 seconds. You, you don't get these animals, chop them in half, and arrange all this stuff. That, I mean, that takes him a while. He goes to some trouble and some expense. And now, God, I've done it. Nothing but the sound of crickets. Nothing's happening. He waits. Any of you guys that, that hunt or out in the woods, you ever notice that when something has been killed, you ever notice how many hours it takes before the birds of prey begin to discover it and descend on it? It takes a while. Abram is there for quite a while to the extent that, that the buzzards are descending. And he's like, I'm trying to have an experience with God here, for heaven's sake. Would you just go on? 
It is a picture for us. Remember the Old Testament gives us all these vivid pictures of realities in life. It is a picture of there are many times in our lives when we do as much as we know of what God has told us to do and we're in the in-between. We're waiting for the next thing from God and the enemy wants to, to come in and distract us and interrupt. There is a season of waiting and there's a distraction from the enemy and this is a normal part of life. We want God to just go bam, 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 one, two, three, here's what you do, and it's all going to be better, and it seldom happens like that. And Abram is experiencing that reality. He's done what he's supposed to do, and now he's waiting on God, and now these stupid birds are coming in. Get lost. I'm trying to have a spiritual experience here. You ever been caught in those moments? Trying to have a spiritual encounter, but the kids won't shut up. Trying to have a quiet time, but my kids are running their mouths, or the phone won't stop ringing. This is life. God works amidst all the noise and distractions. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, he'd been doing this all day, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And then this really peculiar thing, a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, these a representative of the presence and the glory of God now there with Abraham. A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces, the, the, the arranged animal pieces there. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the, and he names off ten different kingdoms, ten, ten different groups of people, because it's a vast piece of land that he's giving now to Abram's descendants as an eternal inheritance. There's a lot in this passage, and I'm going to move through it a little more quickly than usual today, but I, I want to just do two things. First of all, I want to point out to you the fears that Abraham was wrestling with and how much we can identify with the same fears, and then we'll conclude by looking at three truths that, that Abraham learned through this encounter that we probably need to learn along with him. So first of all, Abraham's fears and God's responses. The first thing that I think we can safely say is that Abraham was afraid of future attacks from the four kings from the east. This represents a fear for personal safety, a fear for physical safety. And the reason that I say all of this is because of what we know from chapter 14, but also because of God's response where he says, don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. I'm going to be your shield. Don't you know that when God shows up and speaks a really clear word like that, he's never random? That he's not coming to Abraham when he's feeling confident and bold and nothing's making him afraid. God only shows up and says something like that when there's a reason to say that. And don't you just know that after Abraham won this incredible victory, that from a human standpoint, it makes no sense what he was able to do, that five kings and their armies 
there in, in the Holy Land could not resist these four kings and their armies from Iraq that had come down. Abraham had God on his side and he had surprise on his side. And they, they came in and they attacked swiftly and they won a shocking victory. And it's like, ooh, God is good. And Abraham, you ain't bad too. And, and it was just, it was a great time of victory. But how many of you know that following great victories, there's always a letdown? When you've been on an adrenaline rush high, there's always a, a time of deflation afterwards. We've all experienced it in different seasons of life. Abraham is there. And now he's had time to think about this. And the odds are very, very much in favor of the fact that these four kings aren't just going to go home and go, well, that's a shame. That's a shame that 318 guys just conquered our armies and took away all of the slaves and all of the loot that we had won. I mean, these guys had already come 13 years earlier, won a victory, and when they were rebelled against, they came marching back down 13 years later to reassert their authority and to demonstrate, you can't resist us. And Abraham starts thinking, they're coming back. I know what they're doing. They're going back. They're making a plan. They're getting supplies, and they're going to march back in. And we're not going to be the one with the ones with the element of surprise. They are. They're going to surround us. We won't know what night it's happening on, but they're going to come in and overwhelm us. And, and there's no chance for us to fight them off. And fear begins to set in. How am I going to resist this? I'm not going to see it coming. It's going to be sudden death. He suddenly feels terribly insecure and unsafe. And in some ways, don't you know that's similar to the feeling that many people in the world have today? There's an enemy. It's an unseen enemy. But it seems to be coming from every direction. And we won't see it coming. And it's deadly. And what are we going to do? And there are all the, you know, all kinds of news of gloom and doom. And some people are very afraid right now. The truth be told, there are many times in your life where just from a fleshly perspective, your health and your safety, your welfare is going to be in danger. Let's just be honest. We're in one of those seasons right now. It's okay to acknowledge that. And if you feel afraid... I would encourage you, be honest with God about that. It's worth noting in this passage, Abraham gives voice to some of his fears. I have a feeling he gave voice to a lot more than what we read here. God doesn't chastise him for that. He doesn't shame him for that. What it says is two different times, and then the word of the Lord came to him. That's the very first two times in all the Bible that the Scripture says, and then the word of the Lord came to him. What we get is a glimpse of this reality that when we get real with God, God gets real with us. When we begin to voice our hearts, I mean, stripping past all the, oh, our most blessed, benevolent, heavenly Father, we give you thanks today. You know, if we can just strip away all that churchy lingo and just get honest with God, sometimes God would far rather hear you just utter a couple of honest sentences, even if it's just, God, where are you? I'm afraid that God's like, I can relate to that. I can speak to that. If we could just have some real conversation here, I think God a lot of times would love for us to, to maybe cut back the number of words and just increase the honesty of those words. Abraham's giving voice to his fears, and God is speaking into that. 
And to that he says, Abraham, you don't have to be afraid, for I am your shield. Don't you know, I mean, guys particularly, you'll get this. We're so analytical in how we think, and we're so wired for protection. Guys, don't you just know Abraham had been staying awake at night trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to work this? I've got to keep some of my guys awake at all times. What are the positions that we're going to set up as a defensive perimeter if they come in and attack us? Because I know they're coming. They're probably going to come under cover of darkness. How are we going to position ourselves? How can 318 people possibly fight this off? And he wouldn't have to think about it for very long before he would realize there's no way. If they marshal their forces and they come in in a surprise attack, there's no way to protect our women and children. We can't do it. And in that scenario, God says, Abraham, you don't even be afraid. I'll be your shield. You're trying to figure out how to position your men and your resources to make sure that those under your protection survive. And I want you to understand, Abraham, way more than than your men and their spears and their swords. I will be your shield. They'll have to come through me to get to you. Friends, there is nothing more comforting in the face of danger than to realize harm, whether it be from a virus or from a malevolent human being, can't get through to a child of God who is walking with God, who is covered by the blood of Jesus. It can't get through to you without coming through Jesus. That's good news. That is why the psalmist could say, thank you, John, for opening us with this. In the 91st Psalm, this I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him, for he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. Somebody say amen. God is good. The second fear that Abraham faced was fear of financial loss after he rejected the offer of Sodom's king. This is a part of the story if you weren't here last week. Just just a quick rewind. This is Sodom and Gomorrah and some really wicked cities that have been conquered by these foreign kings. And after this is all over with, the king of Sodom, a wicked man, says to Abraham, Here, all of my people, you can keep their loot. I mean, it's real generous of him, isn't it, to give away other people's stuff. (laughs) But you you just take all their stuff. That'll be my way of rewarding you for you coming in and saving the day and making me look better. And Abraham's response to him was, I'm not going to take one thread from you. I won't take the thong of one sandal from you because never is it going to be said that Abraham was enriched by your pagan hands. That's essentially what he's communicating. I'm never taking anything from you. Abraham didn't have any use for this guy. But now he goes back, and he's thinking about all this stuff, all that he sacrificed. I mean, wouldn't you agree if somebody's offering to make you incredibly rich? A king says, here, you can have all this stuff. In a moment of of faith and character, you you go, I'm not going to take that. That wouldn't be right. I'm not going to accept that. Tell me you wouldn't go back and start thinking about all that you gave up. I mean, okay, maybe this is a silly illustration, but suppose, for instance, 
somebody gave you a winning lottery ticket. They gave you a ticket. You don't, if you are against the lottery and you just totally oppose that, somebody buys the ticket and they give it to you and you're like, but I, I don't do the lottery. I'm not in favor of that. And then lo and behold, it winds up being the winning ticket. It's worth millions. And you're like, but I'm morally opposed to the idea of a lottery. and I, I'm against this, so I'm not going to accept this. I'm here. You, you take my ticket because I'm, I'm not going to accept it. Tell me that you wouldn't, in the days and weeks that followed, second-guess yourself and go, holy cow, I just gave up $10 million. What was I thinking? Now can you begin to appreciate what Abraham is feeling? What did I give up? I mean, there are times of famine and need here. And what, what's going to happen the next time we're in a desperate place? And I just gave up all that I could have had. His concern here is for financial security. And what does God say to him in light of that? Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your very great reward. I think it's interesting that as a church... We've sought the Lord at length about the whole thing of planting a church in Nigeria. We spent a long time last year seeking the Lord about that. It was so clear that on January the 1st, it's interesting. I mean, for me, there is a day. God drew a line in the sand. And when the calendar turned to January 1, he went, green light, proceed. I don't understand his timetable. January 1, he said, go. And I sat out with our leadership that week, and then we shared it with you, and you all said, go. We will go. And so, you know. We said, all right, take five weeks to pray about how we're going to respond in faith and what, what our part's going to be. That's not very long. You did, and in mid-February, you made amazing commitments. I'm going to be sharing at the end of the service more about that, but you stepped out in faith. Many of you made huge sacrifices to do this, giving what many of us couldn't afford to give at the time, committing to give even more over the next 10 months, and it's like, bing, the moment after you did that, what happened? The stock market went down the drain. A lot of people making major sacrifices, and they looked at what was put back for retirement, and suddenly it's just tanking. By the way, it's not finished. There's a very good chance that in the next week or two, as a lot of tests are run and a lot of numbers suddenly start looking worse, the stock market will respond to that. So brace yourself. Don't freak out. The fear of financial loss is going to be real. Does that mean that you made a bad decision, that you gave sacrificially, that you committed? Well, it does if, if you're responsible for your, your financial future. If it's totally up to you, then you made a terrible decision. But if God himself is your great reward, that means the one who controls all resources and who by his own spoken word can create new resources if he is your great reward if he is your supply then you made a really good call you made an investment in the right place because regardless of what the stock market does you will always get a return on that kind of generosity when you step out in faith and obedience god said you don't be afraid abraham i'm your great reward philippians 4 19 will be true for you which says, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Aren't you just comforted to know that God's economy is not tied to the American stock market? Isn't that good news? I mean, you, I, I, I'm not trying to go political here. I, I don't care. 
who you support or don't support. But hasn't it been almost comical and tragic how the news about what's unfolding has been manipulated in an attempt to manipulate the market? And it clearly has been done. We, we've, we've tried to make this story sound better than it is to create confidence for people to prop up the stock market. And it's not working. And so we've seen the effects of that. And now people are like, oh, what are we going to do? And it's just so comforting to know God's economy isn't tied to that at all. God says, this creates an even richer environment for me to unleash my resources on my people because then it's very clear. It's the hand of God. The stock market's tanking. People's, are, people are trembling. Their knees are knocking over. Oh, my goodness, how much worse could this be? People are saying, we haven't seen a day this bad since 2007. This could be worse than the, than the last collapse. I mean, we don't know what the, the bottom of this might look like. We don't have to worry. God goes, those become great opportunities for me just to show it is my hand. It is my supply that resources my people. So to that, as God's people, we can say, bring it on. Let it tank all it wants to because it's just going to be that much more clear. It is the hand of God taking care of us. So right now, if you're looking at a scenario where you're going, oh, but my, my retirement account's looking terrible, or I may be out of work for the next several weeks because of what's going on, I want to tell you, friends, this is an opportunity for you to discover your job is not your source. The hand of God is your supply. You don't have to be afraid to take whatever steps are necessary in the days ahead because God is faithful. And the final thing that I think frightened Abraham was just FOMO, fear of missing out. He's afraid he's going to miss out on the things that, that he had been promised and that he expected in life. Abraham feared missing out on parenthood and possessing the land. It's life significance, just that his life would matter and have counted for something that was worrying him. I mean, think about it. Abraham's made some pretty significant sacrifices to follow God, hasn't he? He left his homeland, he left all of his friends, he left most of his family behind. He moved to another part of the world for the rest of his life. I'd say that's pretty big. It was on the promise of several things, which included that he's going to get kids, and that there's going to be all these blessings that will come from his descendants, and that he's going to be given a land, but now here he is, and he's in his 80s or his 90s, and he's looking around going, well, uh, last time I checked, I don't own any land, and uh, I don't have any kids, and I'm pretty old, God. I'm starting to feel like this was a bait and switch. Which, if we could get honest, if we could get honest with ourselves, there are some Christians that feel like God pulled a bait and switch on them. They've heard messages communicated that made it sound like life was going to look a particular way if you just became a follower of Jesus. And then they trusted Jesus and life didn't look like what they thought it was supposed to look like. It was a lot harder. It involved a lot more sacrifice. Abraham's going, what's the deal, God? All this promise about kids? Last time I checked, I'm feeling about as old as dirt. My wife's not much younger. We don't own any land. I don't see any ability to purchase it. I don't see anybody got, you know, thousands of acres for sale. How's this going to work? He's voicing his fears to God. And the word of the Lord came to him. A son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And to your descendants, I give this land. It's interesting that when this starts in Genesis 12, 
God starts by saying, I'm going to show you a land. That's interesting. You get to do some sightseeing. In time, this turns into, I'm going to give you this land, Abraham. And by the time we get to Genesis 15, we discover the descendants of Abraham forevermore get to possess this land. You know, a hundred years ago, this would have sounded like a peculiar thing to talk about. Israel didn't exist as a nation in the eyes of the world. There was no particular piece of property that we would look at and say, yep, that belongs to the descendants of Abraham. And yet since 1948, we look at these promises a bit differently, don't we? I mean, it is a strange turn in history that such a dispersed people who have not been gathered as a nation for a long time are brought together and the same central piece of property is suddenly put back under their control. It's also not a surprise that every Arab nation basically in the Middle East has fought consistently against them trying to drive them into the mid, trying to get them off of that piece of property because the descendants of Abraham have marked this down. They have a special place in the plan of God. And I don't care how fair or unfair that sounds to you. God's God and he gets to do that kind of thing. The Jewish people have a special role in the plan of God and that piece of real estate has a particular place in the plan of God. When everything comes to a head at the end of time, it's going to happen right there. Satan knows this. He hates this. He hates for the Jewish people to be on this piece of property. He hates those people. That's why he's tried to exterminate them again and again. And it's historically significant that they were given the opportunity to reclaim what God gave 4,000 years ago to Abraham and his descendants. Don't you think that's pretty cool? That we live in an age when we get to see this reality, a a promise that is 4,000 years old, and God says, yep, in the 20th century, I'm just going to pull it back together. I'm going to pull Jewish people from around the globe back here. I told it to Abraham, and it is still true 4,000 years later. It's yours. That's a God who's pretty faithful to his promises right there, I would say. Well, I think we can identify with those fears, can't we? Fears about our personal safety, fears, fears about our personal finances, fears of just missing out on life counting. And boy, God speaks to those things. But beyond that, I want to just very quickly point to three other things, three truths that Abraham had to learn that are, that are really important for us to learn as well. And the first one is this. Abraham discovers that the will of God is more difficult and disturbing than we expected. That didn't get an amen, does it? Yeah. We don't get excited about that. I'm not either. I'm not excited. It's just true that the will of God is more difficult and at times disturbing than we had expected. In my notes, one of the lines that I've got written out is, the will of God does not equal smooth sailing all the time. We love to imagine that it does, don't we? I mean, it's like, I think sometimes we sort of use that as as our thing that we measure our life against so that we check it against to see if we're in the will of God is are things just kind of rocking along as smooth sailing because surely that's the the sign of the blessing of God and being in the will of God right is that everything's going smoothly wrong that's not the case it's just not I mean think about like the disciples when Jesus is is doing his earthly ministry there's nobody on the planet closer to God than they are I mean literally God is in the flesh, and they're walking around with him every day. They're sleeping on the ground next to him every night. They are are in the middle of the will of God. 
And God gets in a boat. Says, we're going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Come and join me. And they get in the boat with him. You can't be more in the will of God than that. And a horrible storm comes down on them to the extent that they are about to drown. The boat is about to sink and Jesus is asleep. And they wake him up and go, don't you care? We're going to die here with you. And Jesus says, shut up to the storm, and it all calms down. And it's like, whoo, boy, that was scary. I don't know what that was about. And they land on the other side, and it's like, whew, glad Jesus is here. We could have died last night. And they step out of the boat, and two crazy demoniacs that are just like the bad guys in some, some, some Marvel comic movie or something. I mean, these are guys that can't be bound with chains. They stay in the graveyard naked all the time, and they come out, whoa. I mean, they're scary. The people in that town, they don't go near them. They're scared to death of these guys. They can't do anything with them. And the disciples, I'm sure, are wide-eyed going, Jesus, was this the beach you wanted to land on? Yep, we're in the right spot. And in an encounter that apparently was not very brief, probably was not very pretty. I'm not fond of ministering to naked men, by the way. I just don't think that's a very pretty ministry encounter. And there is something about men... And nakedness. I'm telling you, as a pastor, you do hospital ministry. Men want to get naked in the middle of... It's weird how many times men are like, Can I show you my scar? I'm like, I don't like doing ministry in those settings. Jesus and the disciples on the shores, naked men. Jesus isn't hindered by that. He sets them free. And we think, oh, it's just going to be nothing but victory. And the people are like, would you all mind leaving town? This isn't comfortable. How about moving on? The will of God... And in one day, one fun weekend, we get a storm that's going to kill us, demoniacs that are naked and scary, and when it's all said and done, get out of town. You can't be more in the will of God than they were. And it was scary. It was unpleasant. It was disturbing. And you may say, well, thanks, preacher. I needed some more good news this week. It actually is good news. Because the truth of the matter is, many times your life and my life is scary, it's unsettling, and it's disturbing. And I can offer you this comfort this morning. You may be right dead center of the will of God. There is an enemy that hates you, and he's going to try and shake you up. He's going to try and shake you off course from doing the will of God. We're in a broken world where doing the will of God many times is at cross purposes with what's going on around us. So don't lose heart because things are difficult. I mean, Abraham is having a major spiritual encounter with God. That sounds pretty scary. I mean, he's doing what God told him to do. But it's getting dark. And Abraham gets so exhausted from it all, he falls asleep. Anybody ever fall asleep in the middle of prayer time? Just the preacher. Okay. I have countless times. Abraham's in the middle of a powerful encounter with God. He's asleep. He's just worn out from it all. And he falls asleep. And a terrifying darkness came down over him. That is a weird line, isn't it? It's a weird line unless you recognize that the Scripture says again and again that God, who is so radiant in His glory that He lights all of heaven... That he is, his glory is surrounded by, according to the scriptures, clouds and thick darkness. In some ways, it shouldn't be a surprise that as the glory of God, the very presence of God is descending on Abraham before he gets to see the radiance 
of the torch and the fire pot drawing near to the glory of God, he has to pass through the darkness first. And I want to tell you that is a picture again of what happens in life, that there are many times where as we draw close to God and what he is wanting to say and do in our lives, that there is a season where it gets scary and dark. And wherefore a a little window of time, we're going, I don't know what God is saying or what God is doing. I just know this is hard. I don't feel like a warm, spiritual fuzzy inside of me. I'm just trying to get through this dark season. And sometimes the darkness is an indication that the glory of God is near, that God is pressing in, that we are drawing close to him. This thing that we call the will of God, sometimes it is more difficult and disturbing than we ever thought. And God speaks about his will and his plan to Abraham in this. And he says, you can be sure of this. Not only are you going to have kids, they're going to have tribulation. In fact, they're going to spend 400 years oppressed as slaves. That's pretty heavy. You can count on it. The will of God can be a scary thing. But God's will must be fulfilled in God's way and in God's time. God's will for Abraham had to happen that way. And it was scary. It was unsettling. It was disturbing because, among other things, he's going to step into obedience, step into the land, take great risk, believe in God for children at the age of 75. And he's going to make it all the way deep into his 90s and still not have any kids. Because by God's plan, by the will of God, Abraham, according to the scriptures, is going to have to be as good as dead from a human standpoint before God will give him kids. Why? Because God wants to make it clear this is a supernatural birth. Abraham is going to be 100 and Sarah is going to be 90 when she gives birth to Isaac. I call that as good as dead, reproductively speaking. It's God's will in God's way, in God's timing, so that God gets maximum glory. Because nobody's looking at Abraham and going, man, you're a lot younger than we thought you were. Good job, big guy. No, sir. In that situation, people are going, there is a God in heaven. If that old joker and that old woman made a baby, there is a God in heaven who did that. That is not about him going to the gym. That is about God doing what only God can do. Second thing Abraham learns is that the favor of God is more gracious and generous than we hoped. He said, your, your descendants are going to be slaves for 400 years, but in the end they will come away with great wealth. And you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Middle East geography, but you might want to turn to a map in the back of your Bible. The Wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates? Let me tell you, that is big. Now we're talking about kingdom of Solomon kind of big. This is why it includes ten kingdoms. God is saying, I'm giving you what is today Israel and most of Lebanon and much of Jordan and Syria and parts of Iraq. I mean, it's crazy big because I want it to be yours. The favor of God is more gracious and more generous than we had hoped. Oh, by the way, Abraham, you're so scared for your safety right now. Here's a comforting word from God. You're going to die 
at a ripe old age. You're going to have a full life. You know, it seems like Abraham was pretty old and probably not that far from the grave when God first started working in his life. He was 75 years old. Anybody remember how old Abraham was when God was finished with him? 175. It may seem like his life was about used up, but when God began to work powerfully in his life, it just stretched out. Some of you may feel like you you missed out on the best because you spent most of your life not close to God. I want to tell you the final years of your life can matter more than all the other years put together if you walk with God. And there's just such comfort in hearing God say, you're going to live to a ripe old age. And I, I had a, a significant health issue a couple of years ago where doctors were saying a lot of disturbing things to me that, you know, held the the possibility of abbreviating life by a great deal and felt like God spoke a really clear word to me about getting to live a long, full life and continuing to do ministry for a lot of years. I want to tell you, there is nothing any doctor could say or anybody else could say to encourage me that came close to what that did to my heart because it's like, it really doesn't matter what any of the tests are saying. We still can't get the test straightened out two years later. I can't give good test results. When they draw my blood, it says bad things. It doesn't worry me in the least because God's already shown me things about my future. And I'm like, I feel like I've gotten the promise of Abraham. I'm not counting on 175 years. But I want to tell you, you can walk with confidence when God gives you a word about a long, full life. I don't know how old I'll be, but I'll be old enough when I die. I will have lived long enough when I die. We can walk with confidence when the favor of God is with us. And then the third and final thing, he discovers the love of God is more extravagant than we imagined. This weird picture where the smoking firepot and blazing torch pass between the halves of the animals. God makes an agreement and says, I give to your descendants the land. What is that all about? Here's the thing that's so powerful in that. I said, when you make a covenant, you sacrifice the animals, you make a little path between the halves, and then you stand side by side, you make the promises, and you pass between the pieces. And it says it's binding for both of us. We both have a part to play in this contract. And if each either of us violates it, we deserve to die. But here is the shocking thing about this picture. Only God passes between the pieces. God doesn't ask Abraham to pass between the pieces. God doesn't ask Abraham to promise anything. God takes all the initiative and says, I will give to you all of these things. I will bless you. I will bless your children because I love you. I will show you favor. And here's the deal, Abraham. I'm not asking you to promise me anything. I'm not asking you to walk between the pieces and make some big, bold statement. You don't have to promise me. I'll make the promises. And I'll say, I would rather die than fail to live up to my promises to you. It's a foreshadowing of the reality of the cross. That God says, I would go to any lengths, including death, to make sure that I can pour out my love on you. And Genesis fifteen six, the John three sixteen of the Old Testament. Abraham had a part to play, but it wasn't to make big promises. It wasn't to go do something great for God. You know what Abraham's gigantic role in this was? To just believe the promises of God. In Hebrew, 
Genesis 15, 6 is five words. It takes 15 words to say it in English. They say it in five words in Hebrew. The three words that, that define it that are at the heart of our faith are believed, credited, and righteousness. The, the word credited or imputed, it means God gave to Abraham. God put in Abraham's account. What did he put in his account? Complete righteousness. The thing that he didn't have. The thing that none of us naturally possess. He gives us the full righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't clean us up a little bit. He makes us completely new so that we bear the righteousness of Jesus. And for the first time, we discover through Abraham's life and example, the path to being right with God, experiencing the love, the forgiveness, and the favor of God, it only requires one thing, and only one thing will get you there. You just must believe God. You just must put your trust and your faith in God. That Hebrew word for believe, it means to cast all of your weight onto something. It's like I could say, I believe this chair can hold me up, but it's going beyond mental ascent saying, I think that it could. It is saying, I hop down here and I just throw all of my weight on the chair, trusting it to hold me up. When we talk about believing God, we are talking about God, I'm giving my life to you. I'm not counting on what I'm going to be able to do to save me. It's all on you. I trust in you. The love of God doesn't hinge on our promises to God. It hinges on us simply believing the promises of God to us. That's good news, isn't it? We live in a world that is so uncertain, but we belong to a God who is so completely certain, who is so completely dependable. We live in a world right now that's frustrated and confused and many are frightened. In the face of that, God says, do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. Would you join me as we turn to him together in prayer? God, thank you that in the face of our greatest challenges and fears, you are good. You are faithful that you are our shield that you are our supply, you are our great reward. I want to invite you right now to just take a moment and in the privacy of your own heart and mind to just be honest with God. Maybe fear has, has been a part of your life. It, it may be about financial insecurity. It may be about health. It may be about your safety or your future, your family. Just be honest with God about what you're carrying in your heart. And I'm going to ask you, would you be willing to just follow the example of Abraham and just declare, Lord, in spite of what I feel and in spite of what I fear, I choose to trust you. I trust you with my health. I trust you with my finances. I trust you with my family. I trust you with my future. God, you are so good. I pray that you would speak in ways that would encourage us, that would be, build faith in us. 
I pray that you would be for us our shield and our great reward. We trust you and we give you thanks for your care in our lives. We pray these things with expectant and grateful hearts. And we say this in the matchless name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, I'm so grateful for you being here today. I don't want you to cut out just yet. Give me five more minutes because we said today is Celebration Sunday. I don't know about you, but it felt like it was kind of tragically ironic that the day we had had set as Celebration Sunday falls where it does. <laughs> that it's it, In some ways it feels like shutdown Sunday or something, and yet it is for us a Celebration Sunday. We celebrate the goodness of God and the provision of God, but specifically today is a day that we had designated to just share where we stand in this thing that we have been called to together. And and listen, I get it. I know that at some level, part of us may be like, oh my goodness, the whole thing of planning a church in Nigeria and all of that, it's easy to go, I'm just not even worried about those things. I'm not thinking about those things because of all that's going on. Can I just remind you, the kingdom of God marches on. We will not be deterred or distracted. There are going to be little hiccups along the way, but God has a calling for us and we're going to walk in that. Now, the reason that I'm not having the ushers come forward to receive the offering while I'm sharing this with you is because we're not going to pass that basket around for everybody to have to touch it and cough on it and pass it along. So just don't don't freak out. We're going to give you a basket. Dave and those guys are getting positioned at the doors to receive the offering after what I'm about to share with you. But just know you can do that on the way out without anything having to touch you. I'm happy to share with you what has unfolded in the last month. We asked you four weeks ago to... Make a commitment to cover what we're doing in prayer, to pray about what your role is supposed to be, whether you go or stay, to make a one-time gift or commitment of an upfront gift, and to make a 10-month commitment of what you, you could do for the rest of the year to support this church planting effort. When we started into this process, the tentative budget to be able to get a church land purchased, a building built, equipped, and to pay for a crusade and a week of ministry and food distribution and all that was about $50,000. And just to be completely honest with you, uh, inflation is out of control in Nigeria. It's terrible. And as we started getting into this process, realized really quickly 50000 was probably not going to be sufficient, that the real number that we're ultimately going to need was probably more like 60000 And we had no way of gauging what was going to be given. It was not like we had extra money laying around as a church for this. So really that 50,000 number had kind of quietly become a 60,000 number. Well, your commitments in the last month, the first fruits offering that we have received is between 49 and $50,000 that has come in in first fruits offering with an additional $11,000 of first fruits commitments yet to be giving, given in the weeks ahead for a total of $60,000. Nobody manipulated that. There wasn't somebody who sat back and said, well, if we don't have enough, I'll write a check to match that up. We haven't in any way done that. We simply added up and said, wow, look at the number that emerged. The operating expense, the month-to-month operating expense, was anticipated to be $1,500 a month, and that's not a part of our budget yet. So we said for the remainder of this year, we're going to need to just make commitments above our tithes to support that. Of 1500 a month. Your commitments per month are just over $2,000 a month. 
to cover the remainder of this year. God is good. Somebody give him praise. We have already wired in the first bit of funds to cover the expenses for the crusade and the week of ministry and food distribution. That will begin on uh, Monday, April, the, I believe it's the 27th, is the final Monday of April. I can't tell you when it's going to end because as Isaiah and I were talking about it this week, because, you know, I'm a typical American. It's like, okay, what day does it start and what day does it end? He said, well, it starts on that final Monday in April. Well, when's it going to end? He said, when the Spirit says it's over. <laughs> said it will be for at least a week it may be 10 days it may be two weeks we will we will have meetings until god says we're done all right that sounds good be praying toward the final final week in april here's the next exciting part some of you knew i don't remember if i said this in in worship or not we were praying between two communities the capital city of abuja or sapala as to where we were supposed to go feel like god has given a word that we're supposed to plant in sapala and um as of this week, land has been found, and we wired in the money this week, $19,200, to purchase the piece of property for the land. By next week, the transaction will happen, and we will have land in Sapala to begin construction of the building. So it is moving forward, and it's moving forward rapidly. The, the plan is still tentatively that we'll send a team over in August, I know, we Nobody can travel to, at this point to Nigeria, but we'll, we'll go when we can go. If, if we can go in August, we'll go in August. If we can't, we'll go as soon as we can go. But that is really good news. We, we wanted to conclude the day knowing that this would be probably a bit of a, of a heavy and different kind of day. We wanted to conclude the day just declaring the goodness of God celebrating what he has done and is doing and that in all of these things he has the victory so i'm going to invite you to stand with me we are going to close out the day just in celebration a wonderful celebration song that declares god you are good and your mercy endures forever would you just join us in doing that right now take us there guys hi Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.